So first up, we have James King of uh, Science Practice. I've got this bit written down, so I really want to get it right. So Science Practice are a research and design company based in London, and they specialize in work that bridges the gap between scientific and cultural systems. So James is going to discuss uh, how Science Practice worked closely with over 100 scientists in fields such as aeronautics, robotics, and medicine as lead research partner on the Longitude Prize. So let's give a warm welcome to James. Hi, um, thanks very much for having me. Um, so as Adam said, uh, I, I'm director of a company called Science Practice, which has been running for about, I think, four years now, according to my accounts. Um, and uh, the, the, some of my employees are here today. Um, we're a very small team, about five people. And uh, we're mainly made up of designers. Um, we've got one researcher. And we just hired our first scientist as well, which is great, um, because now we can sort of back ourselves up with a PhD um, when we talk to other researchers. Um, I also co-direct a company called SPEE, which um, is a medical device uh, con design consultancy. And um, I just want to mention that we're looking for a developer, and that's the only plug that I'll, I'll have. Um, so I'm here today to talk about a project that we did called um, Longitude which um, is something which kind of landed on our desk uh, in January and then completely consumed us for about six months um, through to June and July. And it was a, an interesting project where one thing led to another and we found ourselves in some very strange meetings with some very senior people um, uh, and sort of managed to get by and, and do a good job, I think. So um, i just like to kind of tell you about that project and um, how it went about. So the Longitude Prize is a challenge uh, with a £10 million prize fund to help solve a problem of global antibiotic resistance. It's being run by Nesta, which is um, a, a UK innovation agency, um, and it's been supported by uh, an organisation called Innovate UK, um, just to confuse matters. Um, and uh, the challenge has just been launched and is now open for anyone to take part in. So the idea of a challenge prize is that it's really open to anyone. So if anyone in this room feels like they can solve the problem of um, antibiotic resistance, which I'll describe a bit if you don't know what that is, it's okay, um, then you, you're free to take part and you could win the £10 million. That's the idea. So um, during the development of this prize, uh, we were the kind of lead research partner. And this talk is really about kind of the processes we use, which are probably slightly different to what a, an, I guess, a regular research consultancy might do um, if they were given the same sort of brief. So a little bit of background about Challenge Prizes, just to set the context. Um, challenge Prizes are a very simple idea. A problem is identified, and the challenge is publicized with an offer of a reward or a bounty for anyone um, or organization who can find the first or the best solution. So this is a, um, a timeline of challenge prizes through the years. And really, before there was um, organized academic research, organized science, the very first version of that was called the Longitude Act in 1714. And um, if anyone knows the story of um, a watchmaker called John Harrison, who managed to make a watch um, that would work at sea and therefore be able to tell uh, mariners where they were on the Earth's surface, uh, not just their latitude, but their longitude. And this was one of the, the huge problems of the time. And it really required um, the government to kind of 
set the challenge, offer a bounty, and then allow all comers to kind of take part. Uh, since then, um, uh, if I go back a slide, um, down the bottom of the timeline, there's uh, the Ansari X Prize, which kind of is credited with kicking off the second space race, the kind of commercial space race. Um, companies like SpaceX and uh, Virgin Galactic um, competed in that, and now uh, sort of starting up businesses, trying to take people into orbit and back. Um, it's the 300th anniversary of the Longitude Prize, uh, and so Nesta decided it would be time for a reboot, and so they've started a new one, and it was really our job to help them find what the subject of that challenge should be. So when launching a challenge prize, the most important thing is to pick the problem very, very carefully. Uh, most of the world's problems would make for very, very lousy challenge prizes. Um, only a subset are suitable, and the problem must be simple, uh, both to understand and to articulate, because you have to publicize the challenge. You can't sort of ask people to read a 45-page document and then understand it. Um, the challenge has to be, the problem has to be a real problem, so it's quite easy to think you've got a real problem and you find out it's a bit made up or you're basing it on too many assumptions. Um, and that's very easy to make that sort of mistake when you're imagining what sort of problems people who live in different cultures or locations might have compared to you. Um, the challenge has to be interesting. Uh, that's to say there needs to be people interested in solving it. Um, so a really good challenge prize will galvanize a, a community of people who are thinking about a problem or tinkering away on it but really needed an extra push to, to, to actually crack it and, and, um, and solve that particular problem. Um, the problem needs to be soluble, that needs, it needs to be able to be solved. Um, at least it can't be provably uh, impossible uh, against the laws of physics, etc. And some of the ideas we pitched, um, we were sort of laughed out of the room because they were literally against the laws of physics to kind of um, solve them. So we learned from that, which was good. Um, also, though, uh, a problem can be simply too um, culturally or politically complex to be a good challenge prize. So, um, for instance, feeding the world um, is, is a great idea if you could do it through technology, but also requires kind of political will, um, money, uh, changes in culture, um, probably mass migration. It's, there's, there's huge challenges there other than the technical. So again, that's, that's quite a difficult one to make a challenge prize out of, although we did try for the, the Longitude Prize. Um, and lastly, the problem can't be solved already, which is surprisingly difficult to find out whether someone actually has solved the problem already. If you think of the amount of science which is done today, the amount of technology that's out there, the number of research groups tinkering away on problems who might be publishing in Japanese or Chinese, actually finding out whether someone has Sold the solved the challenge that you're setting and will turn up on day one of the challenge prize being open and ask for the 10 million pounds is, is kind of a risk that you need to be sure um, you're not taking. So a, a problem which fits all of those criteria you could call a, a good problem. Um, and our task was really to help the Longitude Committee and Nesta identify what those good problems were. And this is the end result. We hope this is a good problem. Um, the Longitude Prize 2014 focuses on the subject of antibiotic resistance, and antibiotics underpin much of modern medicine, but are becoming um, less and less useful because they're being overused, and the microbes that we use antibiotics to treat are becoming much more resistant to them, which means that unless we find more antibiotics rapidly and quickly, or find a better way of using the antibiotics we have today, um, we'll, we might run out, and they underpin almost everything that happens inside a hospital, um, inside a GP's office, from surgery, you couldn't have 
surgery. Um, you couldn't do chemotherapy. You couldn't do um, a, you know, bump on the head or a scratch could end up being a life-threatening condition rather than something which you just take a pill for and you're fine. So it's quite a scary future and quite a good challenge for the Longitude Prize. Um, including the Antibiotic Challenge, we actually worked on six candidate challenges in total. So we had to research um, challenges for antibiotics, food, dementia, water, paralysis, and flight. Um, that's quite a lot because we had uh, kind of a six-month timeline to do this work in. And we had to work quickly. There were regular meetings with the Longitude Committee, which was like a collection of the most scary people you could put in one room ever, from the chief medical officer, the chief scientific advisor, um, the head of uh, the Wellcome Trust, um, all sorts of very, very intelligent people who, who um, don't mind really questioning and questioning and questioning you to make sure that they're satisfied. Um, so we had that to contend with, and we also had a media announcement um, with a very hard deadline that would launch the prize, which was um, the BBC Horizon programme and their 50th anniversary special episode, which obviously you can't move because it's an anniversary special episode. Um, so despite the fact that we're not ready yet, we actually had to be ready in order to meet their production schedule, um, which was interesting. And um, the Horizon programme really introduced the public to the six candidate challenges that we'd helped Nesta work on. And, um, as we were doing our research, the BBC production schedule was, was working as well, and it was really interesting to have meetings with them and to be talking with them um, about you know, the sorts of interviews they're setting up, the sorts of locations they wanted to shoot on. Um, and what was brilliant, actually, was that they're an amazing team of, of, um, of television people, and they, they provided us with a lot of um, useful insight and useful research, so it kind of went both ways, which was great. Um, but they would ask questions like, you know, are edible insects in and out, in or out for the food challenge? Or uh, should we go talk to a biofuels people or are we not doing biofuels for the flight challenge? That kind of question would come up and we'd have to sort of come up with an answer quite quickly. Um, and in June, uh, so a, a month later after that challenge, uh, antibiotics had won a public vote. So um, Horizon launched it and then it was announced on the one show, which we were all standing in the back of the crowd um, watching Ross Kemp. Um, uh, talk about his latest kind of forays in Afghanistan. It was quite surreal. And then, um, then the, the, the challenge was kind of announced. Um, so that's kind of all background and all of that stuff that I showed you. Didn't, we didn't really have much of a hand in. That was kind of the big, big machine kind of above us. But um, our job really was to talk to scientists and to make sure that we've got as much scientific rigor into the design of the challenge prizes as possible. And we did that by talking to a lot of people, basically. There was no way other than to, to do that. So um, our, our approach was to basically conduct as many expert interviews as we possibly could fit into um, a very packed schedule. And almost without exception, we decided to interview each expert individually rather than hold workshops or group meetings. Um, I don't know if anyone else has had very bad experiences in workshops, but I think that they're a really good way of wasting a lot of people's time for an entire day. Um, so we decided basically to, 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 to phone people up and actually have one-on-one -on -one discussions instead. Um, and we talked to 140 experts in uh, aeronautics, robotics, water processing, agriculture, and health. So Adam did steal part of my presentation. Um, and about half of those experts we spoke to more than once. So probably in total about 200 hours of research at least. Um, and um, 
we divided the, these kind of conversations into three phases. So the first phase is challenge mapping. Uh, the second phase we call challenge prototyping. And the third phase we, we, we call kind of challenge review, but it's basically a review process. Um, so the first phase, which was challenge mapping, um, is, is quite literal, really. So um, at Science Practice, we always, when we do research, we always do it in a design-led way because we're kind of designers. And that means that rather than asking experts to tell us their opinion on a topic, we'll get their response to a specific proposal. So we'll put something in front of them and get them to tell us what's wrong with it or why they would do it differently, rather than just say, what would you do? And we find that that leads to much, much better conversations. Um, and generally, these proposals that we put in front of people uh, in the format of short documents, generally no more than one page, um, which we often refer to as research stimulus. It would be really nice to make films or objects and things like that, but we find that there's only really time to make a PDF and email it to someone. Um, so a lot of the, the, the stuff that I have to show is basically one-page PDFs. Um, and for phase one, we decided the stimulus would take the form of maps. And we use the word map literally. So it's a diagra diagrammatic representation of the challenge area um, that translates all the scientific, technical, social factors surrounding the challenge into an imagined landscape. And as with the map of a physical landscape, these challenge maps would describe barriers to be overcome or circumnavigated, promising pathways to a goal, um, and maybe the milestones along the way. Uh, there may be sections of the map marked as terra incognita, um, areas of uncertainty where too little is known about the basic science or feasibility of a particular solution. Um, so this is the first one. And I'm going to focus on the food challenge because it was the most complicated one to, to work on, as I hinted about earlier. Um, I think no expert we talked to agreed about what a food challenge um, should look like. Um, it created the most heated discussions. And I think that's probably to do with everyone feeling very personally about what they put in their bodies in terms of food. And also it causing so many front page stories in the past. Um, so everyone's very, very sensitive about proposing anything in public science and technology regarding food. Um, this is our first draft of the food challenge map. You can see it's a kind of castle. Um, and at this point, we are investigating challenges based on solving problems of malnutrition. So for us, it made sense to draw the barriers to solving malnutrition as a sort of edifice that needs to be broken down. Um, the outer walls are labelled with social and political and economic problems that you need to overcome. Um, the middle walls represent problems of access to nutritious foods, so distribution, um, um, how much you can grow, that kind of thing. Um, and the inner walls represent specific types of malnutrition, such as uh, anemia or calcium deficiencies. So in one image, we tried to put all of this complex stuff um, in order just to have a conversation about something, um, even if it was a bit metaphorical. So this isn't necessarily the most sophisticated picture of the complex found, uh, factors surrounding malnourished populations, but it's an honest picture of our understanding at the time, which is quite valuable in a way, because it means that this represents our understanding, and if it's wrong or naive, then at least we'll find out about that right at the early, early part of the process, rather than finding out at the end of the process once we've written the final report. Um, so during the first discussions, as we... Um, suspected, it became apparent that this is uh, no real easy framework to think about the problems of malnutrition. Um, the castle metaphor certainly wasn't it. Even when you render it in a nicer 3D way, it still doesn't make a difference. Um, so we tried a different approach. So this version of the map shows a framework for comparing solutions to different types of malnutrition in different global contexts. Um, so at the top, um, 
what we wanted to do is to kind of create a process that the teams competing in the challenge would need to go through. So um, first, they'd have to define their population that they'd focus on. So that could be something somewhere like New York, where maybe there's uh, problems of overconsumption of meat, um, or uh, Makoko, Nigeria, where maybe there are um, basic vitamin deficiencies in, in iron and vitamin A. Um, and then each team would then propose a, a new type of food product or a new type of food technology that would then help solve the, that, that problem of, of diet or nutrition in that particular location. And then you create a scorecard at the end where you'd be able to kind of compare apples and oranges and compare the team that were focusing on New York with the team that were focusing on Nigeria and see which one actually had the most impact. Hugely problematic. Um, again, uh, we had people saying that um, if you're promoting teams to, to kind of fix anemia in, 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 in sub-Saharan Africa, you're, you're putting the population there at risk of higher rates of infection because if you give people more iron, then the, um, the infectious microbes that may or may not be there will take up that iron and proliferate more than the person. Anyway, it's hugely complicated and a nightmare. Um, so at one point, we actually had to pivot, and rather than focusing on malnutrition, we focused on food. Um, and sp more specifically, the problems of um, kind of food production and food consumption. And this suddenly sort of switched off the kind of the aggravation in the people we're talking to to a certain extent. And um, we, we actually had some quite sensible com uh, conversations around um, how to sustainably intensify food production to meet a kind of growing need. So that was quite useful for us. Um, just briefly, so we designed six challenges. That was one. Um, this is the antibiotics challenge, which started off as a kind of almost like a map of a kind of a war movements or something with, um, you know, antibiotics pushed against the microbe armies. And we were sort of told that war metaphors were not useful in, in health, um, in, in health discourse, and we should probably avoid them, which, which we kind of agreed with. Um, this one's for dementia. Um, so uh, we were sort of set a brief, really, to look at smart technologies for use in the home. Um, and, you know, we actually work in this area through company, like other companies, SPI, and we realize how difficult it is to decide what a solution for someone with dementia should be in terms of technology in their home. Um, so we didn't feel that we could propose um, to uh, the Longitude board, you know, just get people to build one of these, um, you know, a smart CD player or a smart oven or a location tracker. I mean, all of these things require hugely convoluted design processes um, and a lot of user research before you even get to finding out what you need to build. So again, we focused on the kind of process by which people would have to um, uh, do their research, um, look at available technologies, bring them together in some sort of way, um, deploy them, and then test the outputs in a kind of clinical way. Uh, flight was actually quite simple, provided you don't break the laws of physics in what you're specifying people to do. Um, this map kind of looks at all of the different potential technologies um, in the pipeline for reducing the amount of carbon we use when we fly. And you've got everything there from airships um, uh, there. Oh, you can't see my pointer. Airships here. Um, jet airliners all the way through to kind of hydrogen-fueled um, suborbital vehicles. And really through talking with the teams actually building these aircraft, we were trying to find out you know, what the basic range was for them, um, how much payload they could carry, uh, whether they could reach this, the same sort of distances that um, jumbo jets can reach today, um, and what the likely trajectories were. So clouds represent unknowns, and kind of blank lines represent basic 
um, uh, problems with the, the underlying technology. And the purpose of a map like this is to really say, well, if someone can make a plane fly X distance with Y payload and use um, Z amount of fuel or energy, then that would be worthy of a 10 million pound prize because it would be a step change in what's currently available. Uh, paralysis. Um, this map really looks at how the different pathways there are in, in science and technology towards restoring motor function to people who've been paralyzed. Again, it's really complicated because there are lots of different types of paralysis. Someone can be paralyzed from the neck down. Um, they might have just lost the, uh, the, the movement in their arm or their leg. Um, they might still have their arms, but not their legs. And that means that um, if you set a challenge prize about restoring motor function, you know, are you just going to focus on people who have no motor function? Or is it OK to restore the function to someone's hand or their eyelid or something like that? So lots of questions to answer there. Um, but the map really shows three different pathways to, towards um, those sorts of issues. So one of them is regenerative medicine at the top, which is really kind of stem cell therapy and actually rebuilding the nerves, connecting the brain to the, um, to the muscles. Um, in the middle, we've got neural interfaces, so technologies for um, reading signals in the brain and interpreting them. And at the bottom, you've got robotics. And we didn't want to discount any advances made in uh, regenerative medicine. And actually, over the summer, there was a really interesting one where um, a completely severed spine was um, um, a certain amount of movement was, was restored there by using very clever use of stem cells. Um, but we felt that probably it would be exoskeletons and robotics, which would actually in the nearer term enable people to walk again who couldn't. Uh, water, the subject was desalination. So that's um, taking water from the sea, removing the salt, and making it drinkable. And this was one that took a long time to realize that what we were proposing was, again, needing to rewrite the laws of thermodynamics in order to be a viable challenge prize. Um, so some quite interesting meetings with, um, with some, uh, again, some scary scientists telling us how, how naive we were being. But again, these conversations all happened relatively early in the process, and nothing got published that was that stupid, which was great. Um, and all of these maps that I've shown you, they're not really the, 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 the research deliverables. They're not public-facing. They're simply props for conversations that we have. So although they look, um, look like posters or, or things that could go on websites to help communicate the challenge, that's not really their intention. And actually, they wouldn't be very good for that. Um, the real output is the, the conversations that we have with people. And during the first phase of research, we recorded every conversation we had. And we made um, some short videos to play to the Longitude Committee um, because we felt that um, we wouldn't be the right people, uh, being designers and researchers of, of, of the lower stature, to kind of uh, tell them how the challenge should be designed. We needed to let the experts we talked to in their own voices do that. So I'll just show two of these videos before moving on to the phase two. To go to zero carbon, you're, you're going to need to look at this thing completely differently. We're going to need more than just biofuels to crack this. If aviation continues to grow at historic rates, which is between 5 and 7% per year, uh, by the time we get to 2040 or 2050, uh, aviation will be emitting about 40% of the total carbon emissions. You could put two guys, an airplane that's got huge wings covered with solar cells, you can fly around the world. But, you know, I don't see it as terribly practical. You know, one of the things that, that we look at is doing it to show it you know, can be done, or do you, are you trying to actually open an, a, a new commercial market of some sort? If one takes the, the present European research objectives for 
2020. The big ones is to reduce the fuel burn of aircraft by a half. Of that 50% reduction, 20% come from the airframe, 20% would come from the engines, propulsion, and 10% could come from operations. There's a lot going on that can be looked at in propulsion efficiency at different levels, either at the overall system level or at the component level, such as materials for the compressor blades and turbine blades or in the combustion chamber. I'd say the holy grail of the aerodynamicist because of technology called laminar flow. The near-term reality is there are ways to reduce the carbon footprint over the next couple of generations of of building current aircraft are 40 to 50, maybe 60% compared to current day. So same number of passengers, same speed. The length of time between the first zero carbon aeroplane, were it possible to design such a thing, and zero carbon aviation, in other words, where that aeroplane had diffused throughout the aircraft fleet, would be a very long time. Um, so that was zero carbon flight, um, and I can't actually remember which one this is. I remember in a second. There we go. Restoring motor function. People who build robots and write software like building cool stuff, but there's a long history of us building cool stuff that no one uses. You really need to have the medical practitioners and the end users really involved at an early level. These problems need to be addressed in an, an interdisciplinary way. Robotic exoskeletons aren't exactly suitable at this point, just because they are heavy and very expensive and you can't use them for a long period of time. I mean, the, the ultimate goal is, of course, a full-body disability, but there are so many little milestones along the way that we can work towards. What was the link in the middle is the neuromuscular system in terms of locomotion or the neuroscience technology, which is actually evolving quite rapidly. We need to temper the enthusiasm around cellular therapies and regenerative medicine alongside the amount of work that has to go in to, to validate and to be, be sure that what we're doing is safe. The concept of being able to measure neural signals um, with selectivity and, and specificity non-invasively is itself a very major area of research. Power sources, is, I think, is a, a huge challenge. And whatever you build, the robot needs to be able to run for long periods of time. The question of price is obviously is an issue for, and affordability, but the technology itself then needs to be um, suitable, suitable to be able to match the individual, because you know the size of your legs and my pelvis and all the rest are all different. We want it to be something that could be worn, sort of as, as simply and as trivially as wearing normal clothes, something that could be worn under the clothes because it will be thin and light. A good design is when it is around the user-centered uh, philosophy. And the user-centered philosophy is the user's experience. Now, the user experience is how intuitive it is, how comfortable it is. Um, I'm just thinking that they look a little bit like clips from Look Around You on the BBC. Um, um, so. So that was, that was us just trying to convey in the experts' words to the Longitude Committee. Again, these are not public-facing videos. Um, they're just sort of byproducts of the research process. But the, the, the actual conversations themselves would be an important thing to get us to the next stage, which is uh, challenge prototyping, which is a very fancy name. Um, but it's actually very simple. It's really just writing down what the challenge is on one bit of paper and putting it in front of people and saying, what do you think? That's it. Um, but during this phase of discussions with experts, um, 
what we really were interested in is the best formulation, so what the criteria should be, um, how long it should run, whether £10 million was enough to make a dent, because there are plenty of research grants offered for much more than £10 million today. Um, so this document is uh, one page, um, as I said, uh, that has a headline at the top um, accompanied by a simple graphic. So what we're doing here is just testing whether the challenge can be described clearly and succinctly without sacrificing the accuracy of it. So um, obviously you don't want to kind of do a lot of work to designing this great challenge and it's scientifically valid and accurate and then you hand it over to a kind of marketing person and then they completely mangle it in the communication. So we're trying to do that really early and just check that it's okay. Um, and at the top there's a, um, uh, below that there's a short problem statement and a challenge statement. And this is really useful because um, when we talk to experts, they'll generally disagree with us, but it's really useful to find out exactly why they disagree with us. So whether it's the framing of the problem, um, so the fact that um, we frame paralysis as... Uh, uh, no, I'm not going to read that out. Um, or, <laughs> whether, um, or whether the, the suggested goal that we're um, putting forward is, is right or wrong. So that's quite helpful to kind of unpick those kinds of discussions. And then below the fold, um, uh, there's the very detailed judging criteria. So what exactly would need to be done in order to win the prize? Um, what would the judges look for in, in the challenge? So you heard lots of um, talk about good user experience, um, uh, providing freedom to people with, um, with paralysis so that they don't, even though they're wearing an exoskeleton and walk around the living room, you still need to do a bit more than that in order to actually solve any real pro world problems that they might have. Um, and below that, we've got uh, a timeline um, just to talk about really practicalities. You know, so if we're talking to someone we think might compete in the challenge, does the timeline look like something that they can take part in? Because it might be that their funding schedules are different or they're busy for the next three or four years and just simply won't be available. Um, so the last question we asked them is whether they would actually be a contender for the challenge. And if they say yes, that's good. Um, but if they say no, it's a really good opportunity to ask why not. Because quite often when you talk to people or experts um, or get feedback on any work, really, um, people will give you their opinion, but they won't necessarily end up, you know, they might like it, but they won't necessarily end up using it or, or, or seeing themselves as being the end user. So it's very useful just to ask that final validating question. And here are the prototypes for all six of the challenges. Um, and, and that was that phase. So we went through, we went through that one quite quickly. And just briefly, just to summarize the difference between phase one and phase two, uh, phase one was challenge mapping, so that was understanding uh, the area. Um, and phase two was challenge prototyping, so it's engaging experts as potential competitors to develop specific challenge prize designs. Um, and kind of at the last stage, we did a kind of more typical academic thing, which is write a paper and get it reviewed by experts in the field in a more deliberative way. And um, we actually, ended up writing six different reports for each of the challenges and circulating to all the experts that we talked to so far. Um, each one's about 20 to 40 pages long, so much longer than the sorts of documents we've been generating for the research itself. And we circulated these reports um, uh, within our expert group and then the, um, the, the main antibiotics challenge was circulated publicly as well, so we got feedback from anyone in the world who was interested in commenting on this particular design for a challenge prize. Um, and what we were quite careful to do in the, in the report and something we wanted to kind of make really clear was the structure of the report, um, which is based basically on decisions. So we'd made certain decisions based on discussions with people we talked to, and um, 
we really wanted to highlight what those decisions were and what the alternatives were. So um, you can't really read this, um, but each column is a kind of a different stage in the, in the challenge prize design process. And each box is a different option. And the ones that we're recommending are kind of highlighted. Um, so they could be things like, um, this is for the antibiotics challenge for diagnostics, you know, should the diagnostic cost less than this or, or should you leave that open? Or should the diagnostic have this accuracy or that accuracy or should you leave it open? Um, we also developed um, sort of speculative diagnostics for the antibiotics challenge. Um, so things that we could talk to experts about more specifically. So these are all completely fictitious and made up, um, but we imagine with the sorts of things that could result from the long-achieved challenge if, if lots of teams took part and might then find their ways into GPs' offices or hospitals um, to help detect different types of diseases early and, early and often. Um, so this is really kind of the end of my presentation. I'm not sure how long I've talked about. I have a backup presentation in case I'm under time. Um, um, but uh, in summary, I'd just like to say that um, although most of what I've shown is, is quite visual based, that's not really the point of this presentation. So I actually gave the same talk this morning to a group of civil servants in, um, in Whitehall. And um, I wanted to kind of tell them that where often when you read reports which have canvassed a lot of opinion from lots of different experts, the, the researcher's job is really just to kind of convey that opinion in as pure a way as possible without necessarily doing any synthesis or bringing those ideas together. And the way that we tried to do the research from the start was really to take kind of creative responsibility for, for the, the challenge. That's not to say like our, our say is the final say, but we wanted to make sure that each discussion we had was building on the last one and not simply mashing together competing opinions. Um, so this approach of kind of proposing things to experts and um, doing research in quite an active way by um, making things and designing things, even if they're one-page PDFs with a few ideas written down, is really, really important. And at a minimum, it can save a lot of time because you get the stupid ideas out early, as anyone in the world of interaction design knows. You know, fail early, fail often. Um, um, but it also can make discussion much more focused, specific, and useful. And more fundamentally, um, like I said, the, the researchers being more of a provocateur than, than simply trying to convey the opinions of people that they're talking to. So that's all I wanted to say today. So thank you very much. Great. Well, thank you very much for that, James. Um, yeah, my mind's a bit blown by all that. Um, we'd like to open it up to the floor. If anyone has any questions for James, could you please raise your hand and I will pass you the mic. Question. What happens next? Um, well, the challenge is open. So what happens next, hopefully, is um, that the, the people publicizing the challenge do a good job and lots of people find out about it. And um, hopefully, it's kind of a load of academics who were not necessarily working in medical diagnostics 
and maybe working in adjacent fields who maybe have a project on a shelf that they dust off and then bring out and think, actually, maybe we could work on this and come up with some sort of new And that will be the antibiotics challenge. Yeah, yeah. The other, the other five candidate challenges um, are still being developed by Nesta. They kind of own them. And they're looking, I think, for sponsors to take those forward, not as the Longitude Prize, but as other challenges. The, the work's sort of been done in terms of defining them, so it's a shame just to let them sit there. And just to sneak in another question before Adam <laughs> whips the microphone, what did the civil servants say? Um, I got one question, um, and I think it was about, um, I can't even actually remember what it was, so not very much, but I'm hoping that the talk kind of seeps into their subconscious and I'll get an email or something later. But, um, but it, was, it was actually a very interesting meeting this morning about the role of science and expertise used in policy and how that can be done better, and it's something that lots of different people are thinking about, so both people that work in the civil service, in parliament, in government, and people who um, you know, researchers themselves, they want their research to have an impact. They don't want to kind of come up with a, the answer to a big problem and then for it to be ignored. So there's quite a lot of work there at the moment looking at how science can better inform um, you know, the decisions being made by uh, politicians. Can you give an example of a really crazy idea that got down to, say, number seven and tell us why it was rejected after a long time? Um, do you, in terms of the challenge prizes? That we, well, there, w there was a seventh challenge prize at the beginning, which was um, about making artificial organs. So um, there's obviously uh, a great need to, to, for, for more organs than are available. So when people need a transplant, um, often there's a long waiting list and people die as a result. So um, if you can create um, an organ for a patient from their own cells using 3D printing technology or cell culturing technology, then that would be a huge um, improvement. However, I think we kind of, I, I think the decision was sort of made that that research is probably happening anyway. And anything that requires a clinical trial or any kind of clinical research is going to take at least 20 years to do. <laughs> so in terms of the lifetime of the challenge, it just wasn't really a good fit. So there are, lots of, there are lots of great challenges that would make great challenge prizes if the timeline was completely open, but we were constrained to a sort of five-year time frame by which things um, had to happen or not. Cool. Are there any more questions? Great. Well, thank you very much, James. Um, we'll pause for a short break now and... Everybody can get any refreshments. Um, cool, thank you.